So I have a question. Shoot. Is Thor the dude, or is the dude Thor? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the final episode of Superhero Ethics, where everything is on the line in every single property we've ever discussed. No, we're just going to talk about Endgame. Uh, hi, <laughs> I'm Jacob Belichich. I'm one of your hosts. Uh, joining me, as always, is Matthew Westfox. Matthew? Hey, everybody. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're going to talk about Avengers Endgame, since I've finally seen it. Um, <laughs> uh, I have also seen Captain Marvel, so I, I did uh, my catching up within the last couple of weeks uh, going into this. And so, uh, literally saw this movie yesterday, and then we decided, hey, let's, let's get together and talk about it as soon as we can. Uh, so it's very fresh in my mind, and there's there's some things to talk about. It was uh, obviously not a. I think it's no uh, no surprise to anybody that it's not, you know, the the big weighty ethical considerations all over the place type of movie because it is more of an action summer blockbuster type thing. But there are some there's definitely some things to talk about uh, and some character decisions that are made, some personal decisions that are made, some writing directions and story directions that are uh, well. Some people aren't particularly happy about, and other people are like, "Why are you choosing to focus on a character's hair for some reason?" Like, there's <laughs> so th there's a lot to discuss, and so uh, without further ado, uh, Matthew, what what did you think of Endgame? What was your uh, initial like broad based impression about about Endgame? Well, I I just want to say I, I I'm like you. I'm super excited to dive into this. I I want you to know I'm incredibly proud. I saw the movie uh, on opening night. It's now a couple weeks later. I don't think I have once said to you, Jacob, when you're going to see it, Jacob, when you're going to see it, which I admit I have done with other properties. <laughs> so I'm very glad. Other took properties, the time every property, you know, <laughs> I've gotten much better at it recently. Um, and, and I'm also um, many of you, especially if you especially if you follow me on if you follow the superhero ethics uh, on Twitter, you saw these last couple that well, it'll now be about a week later, but that we were tweeting up a whole storm. It was all me. Uh, at Wiscon, which this last this last weekend, um, I was there just this morning where there was a panel on uh, this this topic on Endgame uh, with some great people led by um, Jessica Plummer and uh, uh, and Becky, who are have been two of our frequent uh, co-hosts, uh, uh, frequent guests on this show. Uh, they did a great panel and gave me a lot to think about, so I'm doubly excited to be talking about it today. Um, and and uh, definitely follow me on, follow us on Twitter for more of all the awesome stuff that happened at Wiscon. There's gonna be a lot of cool upcoming panels based on stuff, uh, ep upcoming episodes based on stuff that came out of that. Um, I'm super excited. I'm going to try and slow down a bit. Um, but now to get to your question, I I don't think I have ever had a more cathartic feeling about a movie than I did walking out of Endgame. Um, I think it was not... It's not that I think that it's the best movie of all time. I think there were some problems with it. I think it was overall a fantastic movie, and there's a lot to talk about. Overall, my feeling was over the last 10, you know, after Infinity War, there was so much sort of what's going to happen, what's going to happen. And there was so it just felt like they paid off so many different plot lines and so many different character moments and so many different character beats that we've been waiting for or that we needed resolution to. I, I think that to me that the one the one word I always think of when I think of this movie is catharsis. It felt incredibly cathartic to get this ending to, to so many of the stories, and especially to the story of Tony Stark, which started the whole thing. Yeah, 
What what about you? What was your I take mean, on it? I mean, obviously this movie was uh is is the other end of the book, right? Right? It's you've got your it it kicked off with Iron Man uh and then we they've been building this arc uh over many movies, many different characters, many different stories all culminating in this. And so for me, um this was, you know, it was expected uh, and and I'm very thankful, actually, in, in some of the payoffs that they decided to give us. Um, but just because I expected a lot of what I saw doesn't mean I didn't appreciate it uh, just as much as as I would have if I hadn't or if I. So for for me, I guess um, it's important, and, and I'm I'm bringing this up because I just had this conversation with other people uh, recently about. Uh, Supernatural, a show that I continue to watch, it is important for things to end. Um, mm-hmm. And it is important that we get those endings when uh, when everything is still moving, right? Uh, and I guess, so for me, um, I just really appreciated that uh, the, the people behind the MCU decided that, you know, while they're still riding high, they are actually going to put a button on the story rather than trying to milk it out for another couple of years uh, worth of blockbuster movies, which they may still do, but on a different story, different larger arc. Um, it's also, it was very rewarding in a way, because I don't think I've ever seen a franchise do this before and and successfully complete it right in the way that that the mcu has and so showing that audiences are proving that audiences are capable of engaging with this very long-term storytelling where you have individual stories that are all seemingly somewhat unrelated but that culminate into uh this big overarching tale um i feel is just i'm glad that it happened and it much in the way that uh the Peter Jackson Lord of the Rings proved that filmgoers are much, are more willing to sit in a theater for longer than originally thought. Uh, mm-hmm. I feel like this has opened the door for other long-form storytelling in in movies, and I'm very excited for that. I I think that's a really good point. Um, uh, one of the the, the panelists uh, at the thing I was at this morning, a woman named Ariel, uh, who I'm going to have all of the um the links to their accounts in the in the show notes for this. Uh, she made a point that, that that really resonated with me, where she said she felt like a significant part of the movie was was pandering to the fans in a way that was so needed and was so good, and that on some level, pandering can 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 always feel bad. And it doesn't have to be that there is something incredibly valuable to that kind of catharsis. Um, and and it's funny to me, and not to start two other conversations, but. I, I think one reason that one thing that made me particularly aware of how incredibly satisfied I was with the game, with the, uh, I just gave away, I think what I'm about to say, how satisfied I was with the Marvel end game ending was the fact that in very quick succession, either right before, or right after it, two other major stories that I care about, um, both had their kind of ending to a major, either major storyline or their entire storyline, namely Game of Thrones and the Magic the Gathering storyline, um, both of which I found to be deeply unsatisfying in ways that I felt like the fact that I had Marvel... Both having seen Marvel Endgame made me much more critical of both of them, and both of them reminded me of just how good 
and how difficult what the Russo brothers pulled off with Endgame is. Because having this kind of ending with this kind of having that many good story beats and have it not feel like either like it feels clearly like it's pandering at the excuse of good storytelling or like it doesn't give you the catharsis you need or like it doesn't make sense. All those things can get so problematic. And it was just I just think Endgame did it so well. It's a very difficult line to toe for sure. Uh, and I mean, it should be pointed out that uh, even within this movie, but also within the other movies in in the franchise leading up to it, you know, they didn't execute everything perfectly. There there were definitely issues everywhere along the way. That doesn't mean that the the property as a whole, right, that the story as a whole didn't succeed, right? right. Uh, just as we humans can experience uh, failure while still getting success. Uh, and I want to acknowledge that I think it was incredibly um, cathartic for me in a lot of ways. I think there was also a lot of ways in which it was not like, uh, I, I, and I think some of the, fo- the voices I heard this morning, but I've also been hearing these voices online for some time. There are many people who I think walked away with a lot bigger problems with this movie than I did. Some, in some cases, I agree with those problems. It just didn't hit me as much during the course of the movie itself. In others, I think because I don't have the experience that the problem is coming from, and we'll get more into the specifics later. I don't need to be vague, but but I just kind of want to honor the fact that I feel like. I found the movie. I'm intentionally talking about it being incredibly cathartic, not necessarily about how good it is. I also think it was a very good movie, but I but I kind of wanted you to first talk about the catharsis points before we get into like, okay, as as a movie itself, what worked and maybe what didn't, or what was problematic. Right, and uh, we are of course uh, ostensibly a podcast focused around uh, ethics, or at least superhero ethics, uh, but the. So, so there are there are aspects of Endgame that I have a problem with from a consistency standpoint, um, but we're not really going to get much into that. Like, there's some stuff they do with the time travel that's. Mm. Uh, I do have a question for you though. Uh, I, is I, I, I'm gonna because you open that door. I just want to say one thing quickly mm-hmm. on it. Um, I, I do think they didn't do time travel well, and and you can look to eight million people about how badly they did the how much the the the, the Steve Rogers part at the end is incredibly cathartic and makes no sense whatsoever based um, on the rules that my, they set up in the movie itself. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And and here's my only thing: ninety nine time ninety nine times out of a hundred, um, uh, if someone tells me they're going to make a time travel movie. I'm going to say, okay, I'm accepting that part of your movie is going to be stupid and make no sense, but tell me a good movie anyway, and I'll try not to think about how dumb time travel is. In this movie, they made a point of saying, if you thought time travel is dumb, don't worry, we agree with you, but trust us, we're going to make rules that make sense. And in doing that, they took a big old shit all over a movie about Michael J. Fox on a skateboard that is absolutely cinematic gold. Um, for those who aren't as old as I am, I'm talking about the Back to the Future movies, which I think are fantastic. And they said, no, those movies are bad about time travel. We're going to be better. And to me, once they did that and then didn't do time travel well, I was so pissed. To be fair, <laughs> Back to the Future also doesn't do time travel well. Uh, oh, it doesn't do time travel at all, but it doesn't try to. Well, so... I mean, I, I happen to agree with you that I really enjoy the Back to the Future movies. Uh, mostly the the issue is that uh, if you're going to establish rules for time travel, you should, you know, use them yeah. and continue to use them. But that's neither here nor there. Uh, that That's more to do with problems with the framing and some of the some of the cheats they did to establish the scenes they wanted. Um, right. But I, I wanted those scenes, too, so I'm OK with it because... Uh, here's here's a little secret. Uh, fiction is where you make things up. 
just a little trade what? secret. You just you make things up all the time. It's Calvin. I thought that was politics. It's literally Calvin Ball. And so, like, I don't. Yeah, you can have it. it, it it's the. Uh, I, I've been trying to frame everything in the uh, the hyperspace ram thing from Last Jedi. Yeah, you know what? Uh-huh. It's Calvin Ball. It works because <laughs> that's what they put on the screen. And if you don't accept it, then I don't know what to tell you. That's literally the fiction. I, I agree with you. I think you're mostly right. I think my only point is that, and a movie can work if therefore it says, don't worry, we're playing Calvin Ball, just accept it and go along with it. It's when the movie says, don't know, actually, we're not playing Calvin Ball, we're going to make it make actual sense, then I'm going to take them seriously at that. Yeah, you're, I'm tell so, them so okay, it up. Here's, here's an interesting uh, sort of semi-ethical discussion we can have on this. Uh, you're putting words in their mouth. Uh, that's not what they said. They said it doesn't work that specific way. And they didn't have it work that way. They specifically mentioned, they had uh, the Ancient One mention that we're, you're creating a branching timeline by removing the stones where we don't have this anymore. And now our timeline is messed up, uh, where, even though yours will be fine, right? right. Uh, so they, they posited a multiverse, which Back to the Future does not do. Uh, oh, I, I'm not saying that it doesn't follow the. I, I, what, I, what I'm saying is that that whole conversation with the Ancient One and with Bruce Banner talking about Back to the Future, it it sets up the idea that this movie is saying, instead of just saying we're doing Calvin Ball, go with it. They're saying we we are actually going to try and have rules that make sense. And then I just think they don't meet that. They don't meet the bar that they then set for themselves. Is my only point. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Well, I I don't agree, but I also don't. Uh, think that they necessarily set a bar for them like the the conversation that uh, you're referring to is when tony stark is dismissing time travel as utter nonsense right? right and then ultimately he goes oh never mind we can do this which immediately throws all of that out the window yeah i i, I still stand by the idea that i think the movie was trying to say that it was going to do time that it was going to try and make time travel make sense in a way that the earlier movies hadn't and i just don't think they did that well but Anyway, we, we, that, that that's more literary criticism than ethics. You, right. you had an ethics question you wanted to take us into, I think. Um, sure. So we we can actually talk about this. We can frame this in our Infinity War episode conversation, right? For the for the very first major topic, uh, and this is sure. because this is something we harped on constantly: the Avengers' inability or unwillingness to sacrifice things along the way, leading them to. Uh, the the ultimate conclusion being that they lost everything. Well, half of everything. Um, and, you know, whether or not it was actually half of everything, let's, you know. Uh, but, yeah, it, so so we, we talked about it during the Infinity War podcast, and in this movie, there are multiple people making sacrifices along the way uh, on purpose, you know, intentionally. They know what's going on. You've got uh, Hulk going... I can probably withstand this, right? But not right. knowing for sure. Um, so I, I was wondering, like, if you wanted to kick things off and talk about the different sacrifices that our heroes do end up making, uh, and you know, which of them, uh, if any, we we had problems with, and which of them, if any, we think were uh, necessary. I think this is such a good topic, and just to frame it for those who either don't remember or, or are newer listeners and didn't hear our Infinity War issue, one, I think you alluded to this, but I wanted to fill in the mm-hmm. details a little more. 
one of the major issues that both of us had with that is that so often the the the, the, the main, one of the major themes of Infinity War is is Cap saying again and again we don't trade lives, and it's seeming like the movie is saying that they were wrong to do that. Um, and I I wanted the movie to really take that on heads on. I felt like it it didn't exactly it approached it from a somewhat different direction, but it did bring back the topic of set because it, it wasn't even about that, that, that cap was saying you need to be willing to sacrifice yourself. It's that you have to be willing to sacrifice others. Um, and there's obviously huge ethical issues around that, but the, um, again, go back to listen to our infinity war episode where we talk about all the, 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 the different sides of that. But, but to get to your question, exactly. I, I feel like in this movie, it was about making your own sacrifice, not a sacrifice of someone else. But in that, for the most part, they were ones that I 100% agreed with. I, um, I think the one area where I had problems, and it, it, it's the scene with Clint and Natasha both sort of fighting over which one of them is going to, sacri- is, is going to sacrifice themselves. Um, on the one hand, that scene bothered me because I felt like throughout the entire MCU, Natasha has never been given as much respect and awesomeness as she deserves and to have Clint be, I, I know given why, given where both of their characters are, why it was that Clint was the one who walked away and not Natasha. I wish it hadn't, it hadn't been that way. And I also, as moving as the Tony Stark funeral was, I wish that Natasha had gotten something more of a send off than two people being sad at a lake. Yep. Um, uh, but, 100% but, agree was going to make the same point. Uh. <laughs> awesome. Um, but, and, and, and here's the other thing I had though with that scene and, and I want to get cause some of the other sacrifices because I thought Tony's sacrifice, for example, was the most moving part of the movie. But but here's, here's the thing about the Soul Stone scene that bothered me a little bit. And, and maybe it's because there's no way to do this without it seeming horribly callous. But my understanding of the Soul Stone setup from Infinity War was it's not that you have to be physically present while someone else sacrifices themselves. It's that you have to, in order to be the person who walks away holding the soul stone, you have to be willing to fit to sacrifice someone else. And I feel like on some level, the filmmakers, to have actually Clint kill Natasha or Natasha kill Clint, which seemed to be what the rules of the soul stone would require, was what the, the filmmakers felt like that would be too much to actually do. And I, I thought it was really – I've now seen the movie twice and I watched this scene very closely thinking about this the second time. In that last scene, you know, both Clint and Natasha are trying to be the one just to jump off themselves. And then at the very end, Natasha is is dangling and Clint is holding her and Natasha says, you have to let me go. But then she sort of physically pulls away and it's not entirely clear, does Clint let go or does Clint like lose his grip like, does he make a conscious decision to let her die, or does he just is he fighting to the very end, but he loses his grip? And that made me sad a little bit because it's not that I wanted to watch Clint kill Natasha by any means, but that I feel like the rules of the Soul Stone were that that is what had to happen. One of them had to be the one to actually allow the other to die and make that conscious choice, and the movie backed away from that. I mean, um, what? Do- 
did you did you get any of that out of that, or is this all as, on my own? Head? As somebody who uh, is familiar with the Infinity Crisis uh, storyline from the comics, the the whole Soulstone requiring uh, sacrifice thing is kind of garbage in the first place. That's that's not a real okay. thing. Literally, none of the other Infinity Stones in this storyline require or have any cost associated with them. And in the comics, they all have a cost associated with them, um, but nothing like that. Uh, and so, like. Mm. For me, the like I appreciated the continuity. Um, yep. And like when they got there and they were gonna get it, I was like, okay, fine. This I understand what they're doing here. Um, but I feel like the rules of the Soulstone weren't that. Um, I feel like it's not that you have to sacrifice something and you get the Soulstone. Is that a sacrifice has to be made in order for the Soulstone to to appear right Right. that it requires you it requires a sacrifice um and in the case of natasha um i i and i i had this uh conversation with um with larissa uh who helped frame it in a way that i hadn't really considered um natasha's sacrifice in that scene um in in a way was that she had chosen to go on uh and and live with uh, herself she has this so the, the character of natasha you can look back at the uh at the previous movies um has this really damaged image of herself um right and there's she made a conscious decision to to keep going right um and here like she's been basically suicidal for a while and so mm-hmm. for me, the the major thing about the scene in retrospect, as as I discussed with uh, with Larissa, is that the the suicide seems like something that she had she had given up that that was something that she was going to permit herself to do, um, even right. though she was very depressed. And so, uh, sur- I guess surrendering back to it in a way was the sacrifice that she was making. And it just made the scene incredibly sad. And then for me, the the way the media treated it afterward was to have like a very brief cathartic moment with it. But I felt like I was not okay with the amount of gravitas with which Tony's death was treated versus the what we did with with Natasha. I guess if that makes sense. So like I was fine with us getting the stone as a result of that. um, But then we needed to feel it more. You scared me for a second there because I thought you were going to say you just weren't happy with the gravitas around Tony's funeral. And I was going to be like, that was the best scene in the movie. Get out. Um, But but I, I, I do understand what you mean in terms of like the degree of gravitas he got compared to anyone else. I thought you're right. Was wildly out of balance. Um. And part of and, that is and, because and not he's just... the flagship character, right? And so, right. Uh, but it's that whole idea about some people's lives matter more than others that we don't subscribe to. But that uh, this media sometimes, I, and, and we are rightly critical of it, does where they make some people seem to matter more than others. And 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 to that note, I think worth noting, one of the only strong female characters in the entire series in the entire MCU to be done that way. Um, as well as I just want to throw in a point of the, the thing you said about the way she, you know, the, the, the suicidal, the, the, the way she sort of approaches herself 
I've always had some problems with that as well because there was, you know, I hate Age of Ultron for a lot of reasons. One of which is the whole like her being, her feeling so monstrous because she can't have a baby is such a horrifically sexist plot line from that that movie. Um, putting that part aside, though, I think you're right. If you can forget about that, that being part of the why, her, I, I would not necessarily categorize her as suicidal because I think one of the things that this movie put did that I loved was hold the idea that as broken as everybody was after the snap, she was kind of the one who was holding them all together. And and like her as the director of whatever the sort of post-shield thing was that they were all part of was fantastic. And, and, and I think it wasn't that she was suicidal. It's that I think she was... It's almost that the uh, Tale of Two Cities, you know, a far, far better thing I do now kind of idea. That she was... If, if given the chance to continue trying to live humbly for a cause versus to die nobly for a cause to flip the adage on its head, she was happy to take that, to make that sacrifice herself rather than uh, feeling like someone else would have to do it instead. Right. Um, uh, one note I will have on uh, Age of Ultron that's a, obviously a, a very common criticism one sees levied. Um, like, I think that was part of the point uh, is that that's not a healthy idea to have. Um, and that's part of the reason, like, her self-image is obviously one that we don't agree with, right? Because right. we don't think she's a monster, right? Uh, so, like... Uh, I, I think we can get into a whole other discussion that I, I, and I haven't, I'll admit I haven't seen the movie in many years. Um, I, I, I think that's being a little bit too generous to the filmmakers. It did, it, it did feel to me like, if nothing else, it's just such a, it's such a tired old trope. And when you're going to have so many people in the audience who are having their own issues about trying to get pregnant themselves, as large amounts of the population always do, like, it just felt like such an unfortunate trope to go back to to have a woman feeling monstrous because of that, whether or not the filmmakers agree with her or not. I mean, yeah, that is a very long conversation, uh, and it has to do with relativism in media, but we can we can table that for another time. Um, Fair. because I, we, we, this is something, Hey fans, guess what? Matthew and I don't always agree. This is something we don't agree yeah. on. Uh, <laughs> so, good. uh, moving on though. So, so, so that was, a, so, so many characters in, in age of Ultron, in Endgame, uh, made sacrifices to get us to the point where we could, uh, rebuy, you know, get, get our, get our do over. Uh, but one of the more mm-hmm. interesting sacrifices that I think, um, possibly might have gotten missed is having to keep that five-year period where people were gone right right it's something that they have they they have to concede that in order to make this work at all and that in and of itself is a sacrifice because the, the the big win right is to is to erase everything that had happened to make it all go away uh turn it all back turn back the clock uh and they can't do it because if they did that they would have to uh, throw a bunch of other things under the bus, right? Up to and including mm-hmm. uh, lives from parallel universes that they will literally never interact with, but but it doesn't matter. And so I, I thought that was a particularly, like, very subtle but particularly heroic sacrifice that our heroes just all, like, unanimously decide to make. Nobody fights against it. Uh, well, and, and in some cases, I think it's important to note part part of why that is is that for for someone like Tony, for example, it's not a sacrifice. It's that he would actively fight against it because he has as, – as much as he has lost so much, he's also gained so much in those five years. Right. And it, it raised that really interesting question of 
how do you put what Tony has gained in the five years against what other people have lost in that time? Well, and he puts that into context himself uh, in a very good uh, exchange between him and, and Steve Rogers, people who have not always seen eye to eye on things. Um, when he comes back, he's like, I want to be very clear about what I'm willing to give up and what I'm willing to strive for. Uh, and he makes it very clear that he doesn't want to lose what he's got, what he's gained in the time. Right. And that's and not I, something he's I, willing I was thinking to of you in that specific scene, especially because I remember when we when we did our episodes on um, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the season of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. that took place uh, a lot in the framework. This was a topic that and tell me if I'm wrong, but but my memory is that you like me, but especially you had very strong feelings about because uh, there was this whole plot line involving Mac and how in the framework, uh, which is uh, for those who haven't seen uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., it's an alternate reality um construct um in which mac gets to have his daughter is still alive Mm -hmm. uh, and his daughter has had an active life his hope um and again tell me if i'm wrong here but my memory is that we were both kind of upset at the fact that it didn't take seriously the idea that he would have to lose what he had gained in that in that sort of alternate reality Granted, it's an artificial reality, but but that shouldn't have to matter as much. Um, am I right there that that was something I you mean, had we, some, some issues we, with? If so, of course, how you saw this? We one. definitely talked about it um, because I, the, the show did deal with that some, but um, I have a lot of problems with that particular uh, season of Agents of Shield. So uh, I guess for me, that maybe was like ninth on my list of issues uh, here. <laughs> We have a very clear, like, I felt like it was very humanizing of Tony specifically to have him go, look, I have, uh, I have a daughter now and we're not doing anything to undo that because I, you know, I will tear down everything if we have to do that. I, I feel like from our, from, from a entirely utilitarian argument, right, that his stance is not particularly uh, moral or ethical because He's not willing to sacrifice one for, you know, a very, 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 very large number of lives that were lost. But at the same time, it is very human and very relatable, right? And I really like his – and I I think – I mean, I I know that you're not a a big utilitarian. No, no, I'm not. uh, Yeah, (laughs) and I just want to make that clear because I think think you're right. It it, it doesn't pass utilitarian tests, but I think it's a good example of why utilitarianism can be really dumb. But but part of what I like so much is the way he says it is, I won't be part of something that undoes the last five years. But he also doesn't say something like, "But if you and if you guys try to do it, you'll be taking away my daughter, and I'll fight to stop you." Right. What he says is basically, "I don't want to do it. It's good to see you guys. Have some lunch if you want to have some lunch." And and he kind of he kind of says, "Good luck if you can do it yourselves." Which, which I, which I, I think is an interesting sort of take on what you're saying because, on the one hand, he's not willing to actively sacrifice. On the other hand, he's also saying, I, I, I think my my reading of that is Tony saying, if you can figure out a way to undo the snap and basically give me Peter back and take my daughter away, I can't help you, and I kind of hope you don't. But I'm not going to try and actively mm, stop mm, you. So this is we're we're not talking about the same exchange when he makes the line that i'm referring to it's after he's uh-huh. solved time travel uh and has come to avengers headquarters and be all like i figured it out here's my ground rules here's my conditions mm. for joining up right right uh, when they're meeting at his house yeah he's absolutely just completely dismissive and not willing to help them 
right? Which is different. So, like, when right. he is willing to offer his aid, he has terms, right? And I guess I'm just saying, though, that to me, I think they are part of... Uh, I don't think that his his position changes radically. Because no. I'm just... It, to me, to me, I guess, what it feels like, the whole line of his thought is him saying, if the only way to do this is by losing my daughter, then I want nothing to do with it. Right. But I'm not going to stop you. And then later him saying... Oh wait, I think I figured out a way to do it, which meets my conditions. But let's remember, I'm only doing this with my conditions. Like, I, I guess to me, that's why the two conversations feel like they're part of the same thing. If that makes sense, right? But I remember at the time that he's dismissing the idea that they could even travel in time as pure fantasy, uh, because he hasn't right. done any of the legwork and is unwilling to do any of the legwork to try to figure out if it is possible. Um, right. That's fair. Right. And so, like. He's. I, I feel like the stance that he's taking there in in the context of the media, uh, he's able to take a sort of hands-off approach because he doesn't even think that that level of engagement is possible. Interestingly, as soon as he realizes it is possible, while he's brainstorming and spitballing, which I think he's doing because he wants to make, like, in the back of his head, he wants to make sure that whatever they end up doing doesn't mean he loses uh, what he's gained. Um, right. Now he engages. He like I, I have to do this, uh, and uh, and then does. Um, and everybody's okay with his terms because realistically, he's probably not even the only person in the world who has gained something out of this. Um, oh yeah. Dur- during this time, and so that wouldn't be particularly fair or right for them, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think this is it, it, and it's funny because. Most of the time when you get a situation where there's an alternate timeline and then there's a way to undo that and to go back to where they was, you almost never discuss the ethics of that. You almost never discuss, like, what's going to be lost or, like, do the people who are about to lose all their memories and lose all this, do they consent to that and that? And I, and granted, it's only Tony and, and that is a pretty limited thing in a lot of ways. But, yeah, I thought it was so good to see the movie actually wrestle with that, even if just for one character. Mm-hmm. Um. One other thing that I want to bring up, and it's it's it is related to this issue of sacrifice. It's more related to the issues from Infinity War, um, but I wanted to make sure we touch on it before we go into further because it's like we kind of brought up sacrifice in terms of how we paid off the stuff from Infinity War. You and I talked at great length, as we've already mentioned, about um, the, the 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 way we disagreed with the characters, especially with Cap and his approach to the events of Infinity War. And while you and I are not as much in agreement on this, people who listen to the podcast know that I am a longstanding person who has a lot of feelings on both sides of the Tony-Cap conflict going all the way back to Civil War. And then I think Cap had a lot of very legitimate points, but then I'm more Team Tony. For all of those reasons, to me, another one of the moments that felt so cathartic and also where I so agreed with the character was when Tony calls out Cap towards the beginning of the movie. And he, he kind of blames Cap and says, you know, Cap, you said we would be together, but because you wouldn't listen and you wouldn't work with us on Zakovia and you wouldn't let me put an iron shield around the world, look what happened. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> there's obviously some extent which Tony is, is talking out of grief and he's obviously to some – like I don't think Tony's right that they could have stopped it necessarily either way. But, but I still think that Tony was making some really important points and was calling out Cap in ways that I thought were really needed. And it frankly surprised me because I thought I'd been – I hadn't thought that the movie makers would take that kind of attack. What what was your take on that scene? Well, I feel like Tony was uh, definitely acting out of a place of hurt, 
right? And so some of what he said, I feel like, was intended just as acting out and shouldn't be taken as um, even what his character himself believed, because it's, it's more nuanced <laughs> than that. But I did find it interesting that um, in that moment, he chooses to blame, uh, he chooses to go after uh, Steve Rogers specifically with the idea that, you know, if we had, like, the idea being, if we had done enough to protect the world to, to, uh, that, that this would have been stopped somehow, right? Right. Which I don't, like, I think in the back of Tony's head, Tony knows that's not true. And that's, they still would have shook down about the same way, uh, because they were dealing with, um, almost, but not quite a force of nature, um, Mm-hmm. When it comes to to Thanos, and when it comes to somebody collecting that much power in one location, right? So, I feel like it was unfair of Tony, but intentionally so, uh, and it sort of seeded an idea in Roger's head, right? About you know maybe you should reexamine your priorities for the next time we have to make these kinds of decisions. Um, That's fair. And I, I oh, go on. Oh, go ahead. Well. I was going to say, I, I think I think it's a little bit more fair, both because I do think Tony and Steve, had they been working together and also had they been willing, had Steve not been so stubborn about like, you know, no government, we can do it all ourselves. I think they would have been at least more ready for for, for, Tony, for Thanos. But it, the line that really sticks out to me is is when when Tony says, you know, Cap had said, if we lose, we lose together. And Tony's kind of throwing it in his face and saying, we didn't even do that. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I agree with you on some level. I think, I think you're right. Tony, on some level, agrees that we probably wouldn't have won, lost either way. But he's also saying like, but we would have at least done it together, you know, and that that would have meant a lot more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know. Like, it's it's very easy to uh, sort of armchair quarterback that sort of thing. Um, mm-hmm. but it's another thing entirely to actually, uh, advocate that somehow you're able to repaint the past and go, oh, this is exactly what would have happened had we done this. So I don't think, right. it, I thought it was completely fair of, of Tony, but in that moment, I like, that's not what mattered. And I do think it was an important scene to have because those two had been at odds previously and when they when they start working together again in this movie, um, it's a very big moment. Right. Right. Um, and like they, they get their, you know, team ups and they get their time. And the, I found it very interesting that Tony Stark, which chronologically he's the, by far the younger of the two, uh, if not like actually (laughs) physically, right. Is the one to impart the wisdom of, Hey, uh, maybe enjoy life. Uh, maybe find yeah. a way to carve yourself a slice of happiness rather than just being about your responsibility all the time, uh, which Steve then takes start. It was, that was very heartening to me that, that they had that sort of and, reconciliation. Very much so. And, and I will say to Steve's defense there, I feel like part of what makes that scene so powerful is that Steve doesn't either say, Tony, you're completely right. I'm so sorry. Nor does Steve defend himself and argue back. Yeah. I feel like Steve is willing to say, Tony is having this moment of extreme trauma right now and extreme or like, you know, extreme feelings about what happened. I'm going to just sort of sit and bear witness to it and be present and hold this space for my friend. And as you said, take a lot of it in. And I, and I thought that was such a beautiful moment of 
there being some, to, to me, I think that moment is so important for the catharsis, and, it, and it's important that Tony be the one to kind of be able to be the aggressor in that moment. Because um, you're right, and it's, it's maybe you can walk away thinking Tony was more right or that Tony was more wrong, but that either way that Steve is kind of willing to sort of just be like, okay, Tony, that's your truth. You need to express that, and I need you need to know that I hear that, and then we can move on without... I guess to me, it's something that frustrates me about movies a lot is it often feels like if two characters fight... The, the 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 catharsis they have to have is that eventually one of them has to say you were right and I was wrong and I'm sorry and that that's the complete reality and, and the fact is mo- most of the time that's not true mm-hmm. I'm sure most of us can think about like fights we've had with people we love where there never really was a you were right I was wrong there was just a moment at which we both kind of realized we've both held each other's truths and we understand that and we can move past it and I it's funny, you don't normally think of the Marvel movies as like, you know, the model of, of healing a relationship after a real fight. But I thought that that was a really powerful moment of the two of them being able to have that catharsis without ever exactly either one saying clearly, like, this is the definitive answer. You were right. I was right. wrong. And, and, I, and I really appreciated that they were able to to work together again and that that was something that the movie emphasized, right? That like now the 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 relationship was mended and they didn't have to have a knockdown drag out fight uh to to resolve the who was right conflict because you're right really when you get right down to it it's more nuanced than that it's not about you know one person's ideas were completely right and defensible and the others were indefensible and wrong um right if if you don't mind i would like to move on to something uh we, we don't sure. have it in the notes but it was a uh something for me that i really appreciated was in this movie uh was what they decided to do with bruce banner slash the hulk um mm, yeah go so for the this is and this is something that uh certain timelines of of the comics have done and I, it's always been my favorite uh story and the way they painted it uh in the diner scene when they're meeting up with bruce banner so so he is integrated the hulk into himself right and is now is just he's dr banner and he's also physically the hulk all the time now right right and what i love about that is that and i couldn't say it much better than than the line that was in the movie where he said i kept analyzing that the hulk the the the, that thing inside of me as a disease a monster something to be contained controlled or eliminated and once i started to just understand that it was a part of me and accept that part of me things got a lot better and i just thought that was such a good message for just a a bunch of varying mental health issues that people might be experiencing i was so happy to see that in the movie as a this is how we're going to tell you that he's reconciled because he, he literally just started to accept those parts of himself that he was uh denying fighting and and um and treating as as inhuman, as monstrous. That that moment, I mean, there was a number of things in this movie that made me cry, mm-hmm. but that absolutely did. And I think I had not really been able to put into words why that meant so much to me until you just did it. And I really appreciate that because um, as I think about it, that clicks so much. And I what's coming to mind is, have you seen that there's a meme that's been going around um, and it, it's a kind of like line drawing cartoon type thing. And, and the title of it is, me, my relationship with my mental illness. And it shows 10 years ago, uh, a person with like this big monster thing that's labeled their mental illness, like grabbing them and pulling them back and trying to limit everything they do. And the person's yelling and screaming. And then it's today 
the person is sitting having a cup yep. of coffee and the mental illness is sitting next to them and they're just like, yo, what's up? Mm-hmm. Um, have you seen – you know that yeah, one? Yeah, it's funny because uh, – funny to me in a way because like the – that idea – uh, is also present it's been present in in other media that's come out recently um though the example that's coming immediately to mind it's not all that recent but uh talking about the one of the three brothers from the harry potter three brothers story um who mm. just accepts death as a companion and friend at the end is like that yeah that, that same kind of thing where there's something you're supposed to like you're you're told you're supposed to be avoiding right. it. You're told you're supposed to be getting rid of it, burying it, doing whatever you can. But when you finally actually accept it, that's when you find peace, right? And that's – I mean that has been with my own journey with mental health and with a lot of what I've read about other people's journeys. I think this has been a real shift in the mental health community in the last 10 or 15 years or at least certainly the way it's perceived. And certainly it's been like you know, 20 or 25 years – you know, even that, like five years ago – I would have said, you know, my goal is to fix my anxiety and to never be able to feel it again and to never feel my depression again. And I've come to realize, like, A, not only is that not possible, it's bullshit. Mm -hmm. It doesn't help. And in a lot of ways, I kind of, you know, my anxiety makes me far more aware of the things around me than maybe some other people. And, like, you know, my – the – the 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 way my brain works that's different from other people's, in some ways, I wouldn't want to trade that. What I don't like is when I feel out of control. And when I feel like my anxiety is making me act out in ways that I don't – that I wish I wouldn't act out. And the goal what – I, what, I, what I've come to understand with really good you know, mental therapists and the like and that I think a lot of the mental illness community has really come to understand is the goal isn't to take those things away. It's, allow, it's to allow someone to lead a much more integrated life where that's a part of themselves but it doesn't control them. Right. And you're right. And I, I'm amazed I never really thought of it to this moment. But you're so right that that's what, what Hulk is able to do because the problem for Bruce Banner always was exactly that, that he would lose control and his anger would get him to a point where he couldn't tell if he was fighting Loki or fighting Natasha. Yep. And for him to get to a point where he's like, yeah, I always have this anger, but I have control of it and I'm not going to lose myself to it. Yeah, I'm blown away by just what a good model that is of what mental health like progress can look and like. And it's just in this it's just in this one scene in the movie and it's just such a beautiful idea and then it's all like this is how we're going to explain why Hulk is walking around as the Hulk and Dr. Banner now and I just I wanted to make sure I, that we emphasized it because it's as we've talked about slash complained about on this podcast there are so few portrayals of of uh, mental of of mental health issues in media, and to have the Hulk sit there and show, yes, I accept this part of myself, and then just be a you know be the hero he wants to be because he accepts all aspects of himself is just is beautiful. I'm tearing up a little bit. Yeah. I'm gonna stop talking now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, so I'll, I'll go into something else that is a, a really a, another one, another story arc that. Uh, I'm going to – name is a very controversial one, but I want to talk about my own experience with it because it is so related to trauma and mental stuff and really spoke to me, which is Thor. Um, and I, I, and I want to talk about Thor a bit because I, I want to name that uh, I have a very particular reaction to Thor – to, to the, the journey that Thor goes on. Um, really, I felt incredibly seen by and I felt like I very related to this character and I want to – I want to talk about Thor because in terms of the circles that I travel in and certainly the people I was talking to this weekend, the Thor storyline is probably one of the most controversial and one of the ones that a lot of people have a lot of concerns about and I think for very legitimate reasons. Um, 
you know, fat, let, let's be honest, like there's a lot of it is just straight up fat humor and fat jokes, which I think are, and not, not everyone will agree with me, I get that, but as I understand it, it, it's one of the worst kinds of punching down humor. Punching down is the idea of like where, where you're, you're, you're having your characters kind of make fun of people who are below them instead of like, making fun of the rich is one thing, making fun of the poor is punching down. Um, and we live in such an incredibly fat phobic society that where, where body image stuff is so problematic and so prevalent, I don't like fat humor. I think it's really offensive and, and, and something we, I would like to not see more of. And, and I, there's a number of people I know who watch the Thor storyline. And what they saw is a man going through incredible trauma who, among other things, gains weight as part of that and therefore becomes the butt of jokes because of it. And, and we're really angry about that. And I don't want to invalidate any of that critique in any way. I think all that critique is incredibly valid and, and, and makes some good points. But I watched the Thor storyline and I felt like I was watching myself on screen, um, which sounds incredibly arrogant. I have no power over lightning or hammers. I don't mean that. But what I mean is I've, always, I've never had a Thor body by any means. I've always been a, a heavier person. But when I went through really bad trauma uh, that resulted in um, uh, the situation that I have that is not exactly PTSD, but it's very similar to it, uh, one of the things that happened at first was I gained a lot of weight. And one of the things that I made, a, and this is before Jacob, you and I met, so you never uh, saw this in me, I made a conscious, I was incredibly conscious of the fact that my friends could notice this. And I made a point to make jokes about it in front of my friends in a way that invited them to do the same thing. Um... That wasn't a healthy thing by any, by any means. It was an incredibly toxic way to, to deal with it. I mean, it's just toxic masculinity 101. But it also is exactly what I did. It was what I felt like I needed to do in that moment. And I felt like on some level, the humor that was being levied against Thor was that happening. Was th- like Thor the character inviting the other characters to laugh about his body weight as his way of dealing with it. Um I think the writers then tried to walk a line of both honoring that truth while also throwing in a lot of fat jokes for the audience. And that's, it it felt like they were trying to have it both ways in a way that was unfortunate and didn't work because it did wind up just being a lot of fat phobic humor. But, but I did feel like, I I just kind of wanted to offer that other perspective of there, I don't think that. There's some perspectives I've seen that seem to say that there's nothing of value in Thor's storyline that it was just ignoring his his growth to just have a bunch of fat jokes. And I, and I do think, and maybe, maybe I'm wrong, maybe the, the, the writers completely got this accidentally, but I've talked to enough other men who've gone through body changes after trauma who have had similar reactions to I did that, that I think on some level there's at least some truth that they were stumbling towards even if they didn't do it in the best way. And, and in a way that, that and that doesn't excuse the way they did, they did it because I think a lot of it is still pretty awful. But I think that that truth was one that really spoke to me in a way I wanted to name. So, I have a still different take on the Thor plot line. Uh, and this is one that I've uh, been formulating uh, for a bit. So apologies for just dropping this on you. Uh, but Go for it. Thor's arc is a midlife crisis. And the reason why I say that is that there's there are a couple of scenes in the movie that are definitely painting that picture that he doesn't know what he is or what his role is supposed to be. Right? Or rather, he thinks he knows it and he thinks he failed. Right. And so he's painting himself that image of he's painting himself in the image of the person who failed uh, and is just embracing that. Right. In a lot of ways, Um, the the rampant alcoholism 
not the best, right? We make poor choices when we think that oh, we're not the person we're supposed to be, right? Um, but when he has that conversation with his mother uh, in particular, uh, and the re this is the reason why I want to paint it as a midlife crisis, is when he has that conversation with his mother and his mother's like, you know, stop trying to be who you think you're supposed to be and be you, right? And just like th that idea of uh, being, you know, the best you that you can be, be, be who who you are, who you're not, who you're supposed to be, or who you think you're supposed to be, is something that happens to people um, as they approach that second. It's sort of like a re-identification that people get into. That's the origin behind a lot of this. The, the the idea of a midlife crisis is that somebody no longer understands, like they they've they've had this paradigm shift in their life, right? They no long like who they thought they were, where they thought they were going, doesn't line up with where they are. Uh, and so he's understandably uh, depressed, but his way of engaging with that is, you know, to shrug it off. And I can relate to that uh, in a lot of ways, because when when I've had situations where I didn't, I thought that I was not doing well, right? I thought that I was, was uh, not living up to what I should have been. Uh, the way I engaged with it was to uh make a play at all of the failings that i had and 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 point out to myself and to those around me you know where where i fell short uh and that created a, a similar situation where as you discussed and i'm glad you brought this up my my friends told me or, or not told me but uh but you know i invited them to joke about me uh because if you and there's this idea that if you invite the shame that it's not you know then maybe you don't feel it because you asked for it which is not really how it works but you get into this mindset and then everybody does that and 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 you get you know you get the teasing and you get the uh the abuse and everybody laughs it off and, and you become the butt of most of the jokes among your friends but so i guess what i'm saying here is i think that thor's plot arc is a reflection of how he sees himself throughout where he does see himself i think as the butt of some joke uh, for a significant period of time and so like tries to play into that because he thinks that's what he's supposed to be um but then as we continue on in the movie especially later on he sort of uh, especially like in the the final conflict scene he's off it right there's nothing he does there that's funny and it's not about being funny and when steve rogers takes mjolnir Old Thor, I feel, would have been, and in fact, we saw Old Thor in Age of Ultron being a little bit dejected, a little bit worried about that. And here, he's not just accepting of it. He's thrilled by it, right? And so there's this, like, he's he's got a, you know, some, something resembling a torch passing that he can do. He's got a, uh, not really a prodigy because it doesn't teach him anything. But Thor is able to take... Uh, those things that he thought were his to own that he was failing at and turn it into oh no my role in life has changed i don't think they necessarily painted that story as well as they could and i agree with you that there were issues with uh how they chose to toe the line between showing us that character's struggles and showing us um you know stuff for the audience to get quote cheap laughs out of but I do think that there's some merit in and some realism in what he went through. Uh, if we assume, of course, that as guardians and humans have, you know, similar mental things, which we haven't seen any evidence to the contrary.
that's my thoughts on it. I, I think you're, I think there's some really good points you're making there and some things I hadn't thought of in that way. One or two things I'm going to push back on a little bit, but I, I'm mostly with you. Um, I do want to start by saying one thing as a way of context I think it's important to, li- to lift up, uh, which is that both you and I, I think, are in agreement that the fat fomic humor is not what we, we wanted to be seeing, but we're both seeing some positives in his storyline. Right. I, I want to name, and I, I'm sure you would agree with this, you know, fat phobia is something that hits all people, but is also incredibly gendered in the way it does, and that as men in the world, you or I are not subject to it in quite the same way many other people are. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, and I, I at least for myself, I kind of want to name that, that when I'm saying there was fat phobia, but there was also some good, I also recognize that I'm not the person, even though I'm a very heavy set person, I'm not the person who is most hurt by fat phobia, and that's that I'm, that I'm conscious of that as a that I don't mean to dismiss that in any way, even though I'm lifting up some some things that come out of it. Um, right, absolutely, and I'm not. So here's the thing: uh, in order for our media to give us real quote unquote stories, right? Um, we sort of do have to present the world as it is, and the world as it is has these problems in it, right? I don't want it to. Uh, but I do think like it's it adds a, a I'm not trying to excuse it. I'm just saying that it's it's authentic and still a problem. I would love to be in a yeah. situation where we look at it and go, why? What's funny about this? Right. Why are we laughing at this? Our culture's unfortunately not there yet. And and I th- I think that's true. I think I'd go a little further, but I, but I think actually we're most in agreement here. I, I would just say, like, I, I think there's a way to tell a story about characters laughing at a fat person without inviting the audience to yes, laugh at the fat person absolutely, as well. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think, would you agree that the, the Russos, I think, tried to do that, just, but they, did, they, 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 went, they didn't do a no, good no, job the, of that? No, they, no, they failed to toe that line appropriately. Yeah, I, I think yeah. that, uh, and like, audiences probably, uh, some enjoyed it, but I don't, like, I think it, it causes more problems than it, than it helps. Agreed. Um, to, to your point, though, about the midlife crisis, I, I, I think I, I see what he was doing as a little bit more extreme uh, of a reaction than a midlife crisis. But, I, but, I, but I, I, I see where you can come from with that. And certainly I agree with you about um, him wrestling with this sense of his, his purpose in the world, especially because – and that's a segue to one of my other favorite parts about the movie – is it allows us to talk about the first fight scene where he literally gets to kill Thanos um, because – to me, I, I think the way you phrased it was helpful, and I hadn't been able to phrase it this way before. He's a person who has always sort of believed that if there is a problem, like you are put in this world to control the hammer and to control the thunder, and if there's a problem, hit it with a hammer enough, and the problem will go away. Mm-hmm. And what hap- and, and and that's that's a meta point that is both true for Thor. But it's also kind of true for the superhero world in general. Like superheroes basically seem to believe if there's a problem, hit it with your fists or your weapon enough and the problem will go away. And I thought one of the most brilliant parts of this movie, and I thought of it as a meta narrative, but you're right, it's very specific to Thor, is that in the first third of the movie, they get to do exactly that. They get to go and find Thanos and literally kill him. And it doesn't matter. And to me, that's a big part of what Thor is wrestling with is... It's not even that he, he did fail in stopping Thanos, but he succeeded in killing Thanos, and that didn't matter in the slightest. And 
and, and so I, 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 you're right. I, I really like this idea of that with part of what Thor's wrestling with is that he doesn't know what he's supposed to be doing anymore because on some level he did exactly what he's supposed to be doing and it didn't, it didn't, yeah, it didn't help. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. He did the job that he thought was his job and it fixed nothing. He didn't, it didn't even make him feel better. Right. Yeah. Um, all, well, I mean, and part of, part of it is that he was emphasizing the, what he saw as his failure that Thanos had rubbed in his face to say like, well, you should have gone for the head immediately. Yeah. Right. And like, he does that after the fact. And then like, seems to me to be hyper-focused on if only I had done that back then, we wouldn't be in this situation. Again, like right. very easy to say that uh, after the fact, but who knows what really would have happened. Um, but it's that thing, and I think you, you put it very well, where he has this idea about what he's supposed to do and that if, you know, he does that and then the hero's work is done and that you get the, the heroic ending. And then the last thing he does before we see him again after he's been wallowing in depression, um, at least I think it's very clear that he's been depressed. Uh, the last thing, oh, we, yeah, so. the last thing we saw him do uh, was the, you know, what was the, the thing that was supposed to be his big hero moment? And it's not, and it doesn't really yeah. accomplish anything. And it, to me, it highlights part of why this is actually an issue that came up a lot in the this panel I was at this morning. Um, you and I have talked a lot on this show, and Paul and I talked a lot about it because it's such an, I think, an important issue. If you're talking about the ethics of superheroes, you have to talk about the ethics of violence. And to me, these movies glorify violence. That's that's what they do. And I don't think that's always a bad thing. I think a good fight scene can be a lot of fun. And I, I'm not a pacifist the way I, I thought I was 10 years ago. I definitely think there are some, you know, I'm, I'm on team punch a Nazi. I'm on team, you know, sometimes things have to be fought for using physical means. But I feel like we have to be incredibly careful when we think about why we want to do that. And I love that this movie, I, I think, made a really good point about that by showing, you know, they kill Thanos out of vengeance and it does nothing. And then in the second half, and the entire point of that fight is vengeance because they realize they can't get anything out of him. The second major fight, the last climactic major fight scene of the movie it's not about vengeance at all. It, it's a big game of keep away on some level. Yep. It, it is their violence is one hundred percent to protect and then to stop, and 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 that to me seems such a fundamentally different use of violence. And so having that violence be successful when the other violence wasn't, um, especially because at the end of the day they don't physically beat Thanos in any way. They just outdo. They get the gems away from him, but they never really physically beat him down. Um, Carol shows up and clearly could, um, and to some extent does, but but the fact that it the fight doesn't revolve around physically knocking him unconscious or killing him, it revolves around changing what he can do, just seems such a significant moment. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's still violence, but it is at least violence toward an end that is uh, that that is not vengeful, that is not you know trying to correct for wrongs, but rather to to stop a wrong from happening. Right. Right. Um, and uh, if j- just to quickly go back, uh, I did find it interesting uh, when because at one point Thanos gets to see a recording of his own demise at the hands of Thor. Um, and I found it very interesting in that scene is sort of an uh, I, I liked it because it was a very consistent thing for Thanos's character where 
uh, Gamora and Nebula at the time are both, you know, struck, uh, struck, horror struck's the wrong word, but they're, they're not okay with seeing uh, Thanos beheaded. And Thanos is just like, okay, my work was done. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. And I just, like, I personally felt like, again, Thanos... Say what you will about him. Very consistent character. Uh, not much ego with Thanos, uh, other than you know the the conceit that his ideas are, of course, the right and correct ones. Um, yeah. I think it builds a very good villain. Yeah, I agree, and I and I continue to think he was. He didn't have as much a role in this movie as he did in the first one, and I think I'm a, I was very okay with it. But I thought that his character he continued to get a good characterization. Mm-hmm. Um, as someone I was talking with this morning also pointed out, they didn't quite go into this, but I thought the movie subtly showed this in ways I really liked. In that final ending scene, so many of the characters have a very personal anger against Thanos. You know, Wanda, Scarlet Witch, is so angry about what he did to Vision. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Tony is so angry about what he did to Peter. And all of these... Uh, people have such very personal griefs with Thanos, but not with this Thanos. Mm -hmm. Because they're fighting a Thanos from a different timeline who has no idea why all these people are so mad at him. Right, he hasn't... Well, (laughs) he he thinks it's because of the the big thing that he's planning to do. And he's, like, not completely wrong about that. But yeah, he's not done any of those things. Like, it didn't happen. It would have been... I think it would have been too much comedic for like the theme they were going for. But there was one moment when Wanda is like, I'm, you know, I'm going to get you. I forget her, her words, but she says something very powerful. That's basically about like, I'm going to come after you for what you did to division. And I kind of wanted Thanos to go. And who are you again? What, like, <laughs> what did I do? Like, you know, can, yeah. can I pay for it? Is he okay? <laughs> that would have been very funny, but not, it wouldn't have really fit the scene. Uh, not, not the energy we're going for. So, um, so we are, uh, just a little process check here, we are about closing in on an hour into this. Um, were there other broad topics you wanted to make sure we got to discuss on uh, Avengers Endgame? I, the one last one that I wanted to talk about is Avengers Endgame in regard to the rest of the MCU. Mm-hmm. So this will be a little bit more of a meta thing. So I'll, is there anything you want to talk about with... Avengers itself before I go to that. No, I I talked about the the Hulk thing. That was something I wanted to make sure I got in. But uh, other than that, um, oh, okay. So this is more of a. Uh, I guess there's one thing. So like they they had to return all of the stones, right? And I understand that. Um, this is another thing about the rules of the Soul Stone that don't make sense to me though, because like. If the thing is you're supposed to give the sacrifice to to get the stone, why is it when you bring the stone back you don't get it back? Like if it's an if it's an exchange, like I, it doesn't make any sense to me. But moving on uh, to and, and if we're gonna go to that moment, how much fun would it be when like Red Red Skull is just hanging out and all of a sudden Captain America shows up again? He's all like, like hey, hey, <laughs> remember me. Um, I also don't so, think so that's lo- actually Red Skull, but like whatever the the fiction's wild. Yeah. Um, so the last thing that I wanted to talk about, and this is more a meta point, and this again, it was one thing we got brought up again this this morning, but was talked about in a, a number of places. I feel like this this is very intentionally the end of this major 
MCU storyline that started with Iron Man. And in many ways, I found it incredibly... I thought they did that in a very cathartic way. And I, and especially if you think of it that more than anything, it was Tony Stark's story. Tony Stark's death meant the world to me. And I'm so glad for the way it was done and the funeral scene. And, and we've talked about all that. But it's also the end of a 10-year experiment in a in a... A, a kind of movie and TV making that has never been seen before. And, and I want to kind of take a moment to say what, and, and obviously the MCU is going to continue in some ways, but some ways it's going to be very different. In some ways, a lot of things are, are really at an end. What, what's your take on this? And, and um, I, I'm bringing it up. It's a little bit both just, we can talk about it for 30 seconds as fans, but also because there's a lot of ethical storytelling involved in the way they do and don't do this. So I feel like it's fair game for us to talk about how, how do we feel like they've done with this whole attempt at a con, you know, contiguous universe? Up to Infinity War, they were doing uh, starting off a great job and then a passable job. Uh, then once we did Infinity War, they just stopped uh, in terms of properties outside of the movies. Right. Yeah. And that seems like the direction going forward, which I think I am. I think I understand why they're doing this. I I have a, a pretty strong guess as to the plan going forward, um, which is basically to try to do this again. Only this time they have control over all of the properties. Um, right. As in terms of like the idea behind they it, being Disney, yeah, yeah. Marvel, aka Disney. Disney. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the idea behind it, I loved. I super bought into. I am a little disappointed. Now, I'm a lot disappointed at the execution. Right. I feel like it fell flat later on because they had to drop things out of the the continuity as they went along. And I feel like we would have. We we talked about this when we when we talked about like Luke Cage season two and we and um the different properties, uh, the ne- different Netflix Marvels that should have had some impact from the events of Infinity War, they decided not to deal with it, right? Yeah. And, like, I feel like it was a very big miss, and I think the, like, it was most likely practical reasons why they chose not to do it, but I feel like if you're gonna have the, the... If you're going to have the events of a movie like Infinity War matter, have any kind of moral or or tangible weight, they needed to carry over into the other uh, into the other aspects of the franchise. And I so I I do think that that was a huge miss, and they're probably going to correct for it by doing this whole thing again, but not this one, right? A, with a different broad-based plot arc. But I do think like yeah. this particular arc obviously is completely closed shut, right? I, I think you make some really good points there. I, I think I agree. Um, the, the reason why this feels relevant to me for an ethics show is, and I think you kind of touched on this, one of my frustrations with a lot of pre-MCU movies about violence is that we never see the aftermath. And to my mind, one of the most important parts of the ethics of violence is the aftermath. It's the okay, you've had the major battle in a city, but what happened to that city and how does it rebuild? Okay, you've done this traumatic thing of bringing people forward and back in time. What's the trauma involved? What happens to those people? Where do they go mentally and emotionally and spiritually and, and, and all the rest? And 
the MCU was doing that and it was raising ethical questions that no one ever got to raise mm-hmm. before. And all the Netflix shows were, were based on that. And the Spider-Man movie, which talked about the, 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 the sort of, you know, and, and agents of shield, did such an interesting job of like, what happens when some people want to use science to become superheroes because they see everyone else being superheroes and their kid wants them to be a superhero. Like there was such rich ethical mining to do. And I had the same reaction to you. I was, I was disappointed that they couldn't do it. And on some level, I think realistically the MCU had gotten to a point where it was probably impossible. Like if if you think about how many people were involved in all the different Netflix shows to tell, to say that we had to spoil everything about infinity war to all of them years in advance so that they would know how to write their stuff. Like to some extent, I get that it just would have become untenable, but I'm still disappointed by it. And I, I feel like, I still think Infinity War was a very good movie. I feel like every Netflix show and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. show and other related MCU work that didn't, as you said, didn't give us what we wanted of showing us a post-snap world made me like lose a little bit of the effect of Infinity War mm-hmm. for me. And I have a little bit, I, I had the same reaction with, with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And, and Endgame. I walked out of Endgame thinking, okay, they've now given us a... MCU, where half the people have been gone for five years and half of them are back. And the story of the social integration of those two worlds is going to be a really important one and a really ethically rich one, and I can't wait to see them tell it. And then Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. went, eh, no, we're not going to tell that story. And I haven't seen, no one obviously has seen the new Spider-Man movie. It it looks like a very good movie in a lot of ways, but from the trailer, spoiler warning, uh, but um, well, this is only going to be spoilers of Endgame, but it's spoilers of how Endgame seems to be being played in the trailer of the Spider-Man movie. Uh, Iron Man is dead in that movie, but it doesn't seem like there's any sense of the world being so fundamentally changed by half the world being gone for five years and now suddenly back. And that, and maybe I'm wrong on that, but that's going to also make me feel like it, it takes a little bit away from the power of Endgame. Um, I still think Infinity War was a good movie. I still think Endgame was a good movie, but it And maybe there just isn't any way to have fulfilled that promise of continuity, but it's the promise of continuity they made. And I'm, I think you're right. I think they're going to try again. And I I look forward to seeing them try again. And I think if you asked me 10 years ago, if you'd asked, if you told me exactly what they were going to do with the continuity and said, would this be enough? I would say, absolutely. That's more of a contiguous universe than we've ever had before. It's fantastic. But it does leave me a little wanting, especially because it's the ethical questions we're going to miss out on. Right. I do think, like, I'm cur- I'm anxious to see Far From Home because, among other things, a bunch of those people that are in uh, Peter Parker's class now should be not people he's familiar with at all because he skipped yeah. five years and nobody else did or, or or some of those other people didn't, right? Unless he's in, like, by some miracle, his entire class got snapped out and then snapped back in. Like, that's very unbelievable, so I hope they don't do that. Um but I think, like, that would be a way that they could treat it where he's all like, these are, you know, and I think you're right. Uh, it would be a big miss on their part if they don't take the opportunity to acknowledge that uh, Endgame happened, right? To acknowledge that the right. five-year uh, gap in it, like, they made it a very specific point that, you know, things happen. Life tried to move on. You have the the scene with the people trying to deal with the trauma of the event, uh, you know with uh, Steve Rogers and a bunch of, of people 
you know, just basically trying to talk through their problems. Um, I liked that. The only way that continues to have weight is if we continue to acknowledge and build on the story going forward. So I'm hopeful yeah. uh, because I'm an eternal optimist that that will get this. Um, I will note uh, as a point of humor that we got a Spider-Man Far From Home trailer um, when we were going when we were there to watch Endgame, and some very comedic individual in the theater thought it was a good idea to shout, "Hey, spoilers!" <laughs> <laughs> oh no so did you know that tony was dead before you saw endgame uh-huh. i mean i knew that that was gonna happen but like uh, yeah <laughs> like oh that's so bad that's, that's, I, how in the world could they do that like you know here again none of that was like spider-man being back wasn't a surprise right uh right. tony stark dying was not a surprise i was surprised that he was the that he and Black Widow were the only uh, original roster Avengers members to bite it in the movie. Um, I'm particularly yeah. surprised that Thor has joined the Guardians of the Galaxy. I thought that Chris Hemsworth was going to be done. Um, I am very excited about Thor as part of the Guardians of the Galaxy, but... Uh... I right, let, let's, let's be clear, Thor is part of the Asgardians of the Galaxy. No, 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 no. Um... <laughs> he is an Asgardian of the Galaxy. <laughs> I, I will say, I am going to have very mixed feet because... The one character who I feel like we did not have any time to talk about how much he fucked up, and so for the rest of this movie, I'm still just pissed at him and just don't really want to see him on screen again, is Peter Quill. Um, I'm just very done with that character, and frankly, I, I think Guardians of the Galaxy 3 will be a fun movie. I would be much happier if it was a movie just about Thor and Rocket and Groot. Um, at this point, I think that'd be a much more interesting movie, um, but that's that's neither here nor there. I don't quite have the same... Uh, level of feelings about I understand what Peter Quill did it's dumb he should own his mistakes uh, and if they actually pay continuity he might uh, but if they pay any any uh, coin toward toward acknowledging the events of Infinity War and Endgame and Guardians 3 uh, I think yeah. we're going to see some of that out of him because he, among other things uh, his Gamora is gone still right yeah. um, and and I will say that's one of the things I'm going to be – if we get a movie where him and Gamora have to settle into a new kind of relationship, mm-hmm. I'm here oh, for no, it. Oh, no. That, that 100% it, was what has to happen. It, well, here's the thing because that movie could also be 50 first dates. Yeah. Like if that movie is just him trying to remind Gamora that she's in love with him and it turning into a rom-com for the two of them, um, uh, I'm, we riot. But, like that's but, not the movie I want to see. But she's not because it's not the same person. It's very clear that they're not the same person. Nebula 2, or Nebula 1 shot Nebula 2. Like, they're not, right. anyway. Um, there's That's a whole other uh, ethical conversation, by the way. <laughs> and uh, yeah, something for a later date about uh, the treatment of people from alternate realities as the same person is, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, that, that that's a good thing. I mean, they're... they're, they're oh. It was funny when you started the movie thinking like there wasn't that much ethically in this movie to go into. I was kind of like, wait, really? <laughs> I felt like it was a great movie and it was, it was very much a summer blockbuster. But I thought that, that I feel like there's so much that you and I have talked about. We could also go five more hours on this movie. And I mean, so much more. To we talk could. About, so. Part of that is is we're fanboying out if we want to be like honest with ourselves, right? Um, mm-hmm. Like I knew most of this was going to be tackled. There, there wasn't a lot of surprises in this movie. Uh, the biggest one actually was that they decided that we needed to kill Natasha off, which was very sad. Um, yeah. Or ra- rather kill Natasha off, but not other 
uh, initial Avengers members, right? So yeah. Um, I also uh, to get out ahead of this because we didn't talk about Carol Danvers much. I love everything that Captain Marvel is in. Uh, I love that whole yep. thing. She's incredibly powerful, and I don't care. Uh, <laughs> she's great. I love Captain Marvel. For, for anyone who's wondering, uh, Jacob has seen Captain Marvel. We're recording about Endgame, uh, not Captain Marvel, because I think both of us feel like we have a lot to say about Captain Marvel, but doing a podcast that's just two men talking about Captain Marvel sounds like a really bad idea. Um, and that's one where I definitely want to have some guests on to hear some other perspectives, because I feel like her story is one that I, I, re- I, I can resonate with and understand, but I feel like especially with all the discussion that's happened with her and all this, the idiotic fanboy reaction to her, there's, there's, there's a voice of, of who her story speaks to that, that Jacob or I can, is not the person who can be the best, the best representative of. And so we're absolutely going to do a, uh, an episode on Captain Marvel at some point. We're, we're trying to do some scheduling, some potential guests to get on for that because I think there's a lot of other great voices that should also be heard um, on anything, but especially on Captain Marvel. But you're right. I, I love Captain Marvel as a character. I loved her movie. And I thought they found a really good way to use her because there is an extent to which the movie could have ended within 10 minutes. It was just Captain Marvel goes and fixes everything because at this point it seems she has that power level. And they found a way to justify her not being there. On some on some level it was sad because she's such a good character. I would have loved to see a lot more of her. But it also, I thought they, they, they did a very good balance of using her in exactly the right ways. Right, and I, I really liked the whole, well, because she is uh, has such immense capability that she has to tackle bigger problems. And that means that she can't be involved in this one specifically for, for a majority of her time, right? That right. makes a lot of sense to me. Also, like, it's not that she's, like, I... I really hate this particular criticism because, like, anybody who's read the comics knows that, like, even if you've got, uh, yes, Cap- Cap- yes, Captain Marvel, Carol Danvers is immensely powerful compared to some of the other characters we have seen. Uh, she is by no means omnipotent, uh, and painting her as such just because she gets to be more powerful than all of the heroes we've seen to date is ludicrous. Uh, right. Yes, she could stand against Thanos for a couple of seconds when he had the Infinity Gauntlet on. That is exceptional. Note that she was not able to defeat him, right, in that particular situation. So, like, there are limits. She can't undo reality. That's not her power set. Anyway, sorry. I... I... Yeah, no, I I think that's a really good point. I think it's... It, it reminds me a lot of the Mary Sue conversations that happened around Rey and, and, and around Star Wars where one of the things that happens is if a woman character is presented as having immense power related to anyone else, part of what a lot of the, the toxic parts of fandom will do is over-exaggerate that to the point of, of absurdity to try and critique the character. And I think that's an important point of, you know... Captain Marvel is a creation of the Infinity Stones themselves. So, of course, she has a level of power beyond any of the rest of our heroes, and a level of power that is directly related to the Infinity Stones. And so her ability to stand against Thanos when he has the Infinity Stones makes sense, because her power has the same source. But he literally has the stones. She has an essence of one of the stones in her. Um, And so, yeah, I think that it it does a real disservice to her to, to... I think we should both talk about her being as immensely powerful as she is and that she could do to Thanos what no one else could. And by the way, also important that probably the only other person who has anywhere near that much power against her was Scarlet Witch. Mm -hmm. 
uh, another character who's not really been given as as most much service by the movies as as she could be. Um, but that yeah, it's it's not that she had to be kept off screen because you know she's just she she's more powerful than Thanos. It's just that she that there's a different power level there. Right, and it doesn't like. This it's sort of a little bit the Superman dilemma, right? And that is a fair criticism to levy, but like you, we levy it against Superman all of the time, and it's just it's harder to write uh, stories about characters like that because you have to give them challenges that cannot be solved by their power set, and there's a lot of problems that that Carol Danvers can solve with her power set. <laughs> so yeah, uh, and, and it's part of why, and, and not to get into the Carol Danvers review that we're not going to do yet, but it, it is part of why I loved the, the Captain Marvel movie so much because the central conflict wasn't, can she find enough power to overcome these things? It's, can she overcome all the people who are telling her to limit her right. power? Um, which I thought was such a nice flip. But that, that, that is stuff. definitely a conversation for, when we talk about Captain Marvel, uh, I feels like to me we are, uh, again, we could talk for a lot longer about uh, some of the things that happened. In We're hitting Endgame, the 90-minute mark. But yep. uh, yeah, we, we definitely should wrap this up. So I don't have anything more I would like to contribute. I think I'm ready to close out unless... Yeah, I, I am as well. I think um, you've had a lot to say. I've had a lot to say. To you guys, the listeners, what do you have to say? Um, as always, you know, it's funny to me. I've just come from a full weekend of... You get to give a long talk, and then you get to have 20 minutes of conversation and question and answers from the audience. And um, I'm a little like, well, where are my questions? And, of course, you all are not going to hear this for a couple weeks, uh, hopefully a week or so. But, um, but yeah, to anyone who's listening to it now, let us know what do you think. What do you, um, what's your take on, on the Thor storyline? What's your take on um, time travel and how it was handled or, or Tony and, and his resolution or, or uh, Natasha and how she was treated or, or uh, an issue we haven't talked about at all? Um, like... Um, Clint going t- into Ro- turning into Ronan is an issue that a lot of people loved and a lot of people had real trouble with um, for a number of reasons. Like, what what's your take on all this? Um, you can find us on Twitter at Superhero Ethics uh, or on Facebook at the same name. Uh, you can also email us at superheroethics at gmail.com. Um, and you can also find each of us individually. Um, Jacob, what's the best way for them to find you? Uh, well, best way to find me is probably on uh, Twitter at this point if you just want to to send a comment uh i'm on twitter at bots are people too the r is the letter r uh and uh you can also just find me on facebook although i will not just auto accept any friend request but if i see you engaging with uh some of the uh posts on the various superhero ethics platforms we have on facebook yeah i'll probably accept because i'll recognize your name then uh that's basically my criteria for that um, uh, I won't give away my email cause that has too much stuff going to it already. Sorry. Uh, awesome. <laughs> but yeah, uh, happy to engage. I've had a couple of, I, I don't have his email either. So don't worry about That's it. That's patently untrue. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we, we, we've had some, uh, conversations on uh, Facebook specifically, uh, and a couple of Twitter engagements that I've had that, uh, uh have maybe, I guess not completely regret getting on that platform. Although I still mostly regret it. Uh, <laughs> That's understandable, and and I will say, um, for anyone who has followed along Twitter during the Wiscon weekend or Memorial Day weekend, um, I Matthew am on Caped Ethicist, um, also it's Superhero Ethicist, um, uh, I and that is my own personal account. I was, however, using the general Superhero Ethics account to live tweet the entire weekend, um, and so for anyone who was surprised at the uh, 
number of texts we got on all sorts of topics, everything from the ethics of Shira and of trauma in movies to a panel on um, superpowers for banging and the best superpowers for use in different sex positions. Um, uh, I, I, I either give you my thanks or my apologies, depending on your uh, uh, interest in all of those different topics. Um, we'll just say again that the, the, the WISCON um, is a fantastic three days of feminist uh, sci-fi and, and geekness with so much of the things that this podcast cares about. And I'm really looking forward to bringing a lot of those conversations to you guys. But that I will now go back to keeping most of my own uh, uh, tweets to that caped ethicist account. And superhero ethics will go back to mostly just being notifications about new episodes that have come out or things specific to the podcast. Um, A couple other quick things to note. For those of you who want to support the podcast, we do have a Patreon. It's just Superhero Ethics at Patreon.com. It's a great way to help support what Jacob and I are doing, uh, help uh, allow us to kind of upgrade in terms of microphones and sound equipment and stuff like that, and help make it possible for us to keep bringing these podcasts to you, help uh, cover some of the costs of the website and stuff like that and the hosting. Um, you can, and there's a lot of great free stuff you can get from being a supporter. You can get, and a great thank you to our Patreons. Um, you can also get a lot of free merchandise um, at our store. Uh, not free merchandise, forgive me. It, it does cost something. But there's a lot of great t-shirts and uh, mouse pads and things like that. The link to that will be in the show notes. Um, lastly, I wanted to say that I've also started a new podcast project um, with Matthew Carroll, who is of the MCU cast, the Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast, um, which is one of the ones that helped inspire this podcast. Um, it's a fantastic podcast about everything MCU. I would definitely check it out if you don't already. Uh, but he and I are going to be doing a podcast on uh, the TV show Orville. Um, it's going to be called the Orville Universe Cast. We've recorded the first episode. Um, by the time this goes live, we may have that up yet, or it may still be another week or so, depending on how our recording schedule works out. But Orville Universe Cast will be coming soon. And we're gonna, it's going to be a little bit more of a fanboy podcast than this one is. But we will definitely be talking about the ethics of that uh, show quite a bit. Uh, and Jacob, I know we're going to hopefully help uh, get you on as a guest from time to time and, and some other great people as guests because it's a very rich show with so much to talk about. Um, so check that out. There's going to be a lot of great stuff in the, the show notes for this episode today. Check them all out. Um, but beyond that, thank you guys, all of you, for listening. Thank you, as always, to Jack Heese, the person who uh, did the music for our outro, intro and outro. Um, thank you, Jacob, for being a part of this. Thank you to... All the great people who I met at WISCON who helped inspire a lot of this discussion and gave me some great ideas to keep talking about. Um, thank you guys all. Have a great day.